is episode number 66 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program, which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. Unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. And follow us on Twitter at individual the number one pod. That's individual one pod. Due to the wildfires here in the Southern California area, we were not able to do our normal Wednesday podcast for the individual one uh, program. Uh, so we have a lot to to review. The last episode we did was a week ago, and that was uh, episode number 65. And that was the day we all learned that the leader of ISIS at the time, al-Baghdadi, had been killed in a raid uh, on ISIS in northern Syria. And at that time, uh, I focused a lot about on what uh, Donald Trump's response to it was, whether or not we could believe what he was saying, whether or not he was going to get any sort of uh, popularity bump in his approval ratings. And my assessment at the time was that everything he said should be suspect, unfortunately, because of the nature of who he is, that he's a pathological liar and therefore cannot be trusted, even on the most basic things. Correct. Uh, and I also believe that because we are so divided as a nation, that this was not going to have much political impact, if at all. Uh, one, because our news cycle is so damn short now that it'll be forgotten in a couple of days. That has turned out to be true. And uh, also because of the fact that there are very, very few people who are remotely undecided about Donald Trump. The people who like him love him. Uh, there's no doubt about that. We, we all know uh, why that is. I love the poorly educated. Uh, and the people who dislike him really, really dislike him. Correct. Uh, which we've seen at not one but two sporting events within the last week. He was uh, booed not just at the World Series in Washington, D.C., but he was also booed at a wrestling event. I'm sorry, a fighting event in uh, in New York City at Madison Square Garden. And, uh, you know, you would think that that crowd, even though it's New York City, might have been a little bit more pro-Trump, but they were not. Uh, he is exceedingly unpopular, but he has a very, very strong base of approximately 40 to 42 percent of the American people who uh, still strongly uh, support him and probably will till the very, very end, because that's how his entire base has been built. He has built this this ship, if you will, to endure the worst of storms. He doesn't care about 55 to 60 percent of the American people. He only cares about the 40 percent that are already on his side. Correct. And he's done a very good job of giving them what they want. And, and of course, the state-run media has been a tremendous propaganda tool for all that. But before we get into everything else that's happened uh, since the, the death of al-Baghdadi was announced, I want to briefly revisit it because I do think it's it's instructive for an awful lot of the, the Trump presidency. And so this, just to review, this, this is what Donald Trump, this is the core of what Donald Trump said when he dramatically announced a week ago or so the, the death of al-Baghdadi in a U.S. raid in northern Syria. Last night, the United States brought the world's number one terrorist leader to justice, Abu Bakr 
al-Baghdadi, is dead. He was the founder and leader of ISIS, the most ruthless and violent terror organization anywhere in the world. The United States has been searching for Baghdadi for many years. Capturing or killing Baghdadi has been the top national security priority of my administration. U.S. Special Operations Forces executed a dangerous and daring nighttime raid in northwestern Syria and accomplished their mission in grand style. The U.S. personnel were incredible. I got to watch much of it. No personnel were lost in the operation, while a large number of Baghdadi's fighters and companions were killed with him. He died after running into a dead-end tunnel, whimpering and crying and screaming all the way. Now, at the time, uh, obviously, the, the whimpering and the crying and the screaming was a description that caught everyone's attention. Uh, and, you know, there, were, there was certainly a scenario where even I would be cheering that kind of thing. I mean, the, you know, when the bad guy finally gets what he's due, you know, that's, there's, you know I, I have no problem with a little bit of bloodlust there. Uh, and while it's not presidential normally, in this kind of situation, I, I could allow for, for some latitude. However, and I did not express this. I expressed some skepticism about other aspects of this. I did not express skepticism, as I should have, about how accurate that was. Because I, I have to acknowledge that my BS detector was tingling a little bit. But um, I didn't actually say anything about it, largely because you want to believe... The president is telling you the truth in something so important as this. And why exaggerate something that's fantastic news, right? There's no need to exaggerate it. You've got the bad guy. You know, you don't want to take uh, the, the, you know, spike it in the end zone and take the victory lap and all that to an extraordinary degree, which, of course, is the way Trump works. But, I mean, you, you deserve credit. You, you didn't get in the way. You made the right call. The, the mission was a success. The bad guy died. Fantastic. But there, were, there was one thing in that statement, I don't know if you caught it, that immediately got my spidey senses tingling. When Trump says, I was able to see much of it, I was able to see much of it. Now, that's an interesting statement because he clearly is not saying he saw all of it. Saying I saw much of it is almost inherently uh, the plausible deniability. Or for I didn't see that part of it, but I did see this part of it. Well, why didn't you see all of it? Where were you? Why weren't you watching all of it? And 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 how is it that he would have any idea that Baghdadi was whimpering and crying uh, till his death? I mean, that seemed implausible, just not realistic. It's not like, uh, you know, even though he described it like watching a movie, it's not like, uh, you know, we have uh, a Hollywood crew uh, right there in al-Baghdadi's face being able to discern these types of things. Well, as it turns out, surprise, surprise, 
the the military leadership has been now quoted after being asked at a press conference, uh, where did the president get this information from? And they very uh, awkwardly said, uh, I have no idea uh, on what the president is basing this. Maybe he's talked to other people. Uh, but there, to this day, there is still no indication whatsoever uh, that the president could have even theoretically had that kind of information, that that's how al-Baghdadi uh, met his death. And essentially, we now have to presume, because it's Trump, that he made it up, that it was just flat out made up out of his own imagination. Correct. Maybe out of his imagination of how he would go down if he was ever trapped in a similar situation. Correct. And so uh, that's depressing to me. That's depressing that the president of the United States, we now have to presume, was lying, just making crap up about something so important that's actually a positive thing. I mean, it's one thing to lie about something bad that's happened, but why do you need to lie about something that good that occurred? It just doesn't make any damn sense. Correct. But that's that's who Trump is. And of course, this now gets me skeptical about everything else about this story. And I said at the time uh, in last week's uh, podcast, I said, look, a lot of this doesn't make sense as far as timing is concerned. And it did turn out, uh, as I implied, that we did know where al-Baghdadi was for quite a while, and that it was the chaos that ensued because of our pullout of northern Syria that essentially uh, forced our hand to go ahead with this this uh, uh, this this attempt to get him before the information became uh, irrelevant or cold, and that this mission needed to be done now, that essentially uh, this occurred because of Trump's screw-up. That we we were running out of time to get it done, and we got it done uh, before uh, that time limit had been reached, and that turns out, based upon voluminous reporting, to be true. Uh, I now also have questions about that Situation Room photograph, which where people were automatically saying uh, this looks staged. That the, the timestamp doesn't seem right. Uh, that it, and that's consistent with the idea that Trump says I saw much of it. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, and so I, I don't trust that. I, not that it's a huge deal, but I don't trust the Situation Room uh, photograph. And then there's the dog situation. Now, uh, the dog uh, situation was exceedingly popular because people love dogs, right? And the idea of a hero dog, that's uh, incredibly enticing. And apparently there was a dog named Conan who played an important role and was injured in this mission, but apparently is okay. And that's fantastic. It's a great story. I'm all for it. But here's here's how uh, in, incredibly co- coercive um, and, and corrupt the the fact that trump is a pathological liar is to everything else that he does and says and this is sad and i honestly don't think that i deserve blame for reacting this way because i think this is a natural rational reaction but trump posted a photograph on twitter of conan the dog the hero dog now this should be a great moment for america right yay conan the hero dog But because Trump is such a pathological liar and he's willing to even lie about the uh, made-up details like uh, al-Baghdadi whimpering and crying to his death, everything needs to be held to much more scrutiny. And the photograph is a posed uh, professional photograph. That doesn't mean it's not real, but uh, it seemed a little odd to me that, okay, why does Conan already have who's been injured, right? So this can't have... Because this photograph was not professionally done after.
after the mission. <laughs> this looks like it's been done on, on, on some sort of a, of a set, uh, you know, like you go for your Christmas pictures or something. So clearly an injured dog was did not have his photograph taken after the mission. So I'm thinking, well, why why would he have had his photograph taken professionally before the mission? Is this normal? And again, I don't know. Maybe it is totally normal. But these are questions I'm asking because we have a pathological liar as president and because it's obviously incredibly easy to take any photograph of any German shepherd and post it as the Conan the hero dog because there's it would be impossible for anyone to know for sure once we find out the you know who the real dog is whether that photograph was legitimate or not. Again, this is an incredibly uh, insignificant thing in the larger scheme of, of events, but it goes to how little trust Donald Trump instills. And that's important because if you have that little credibility, if your word means that little as president of the United States, how could you ever possibly conceive of doing anything dramatic like, for instance, uh, having the moral authority to bring the United States into a legitimate military conflict or a war of some kind. I mean, you don't even have the, Donald Trump doesn't even have the moral authority to tweet a photograph of Conan the Hero dog without rational people automatically presuming, wait a minute, there's got to be a problem here. <laughs> That's a huge issue for the leader of the free world and the president of the United States. Correct. Because there's no reason to trust anything he does. So I have absolutely no evidence whatsoever that that wasn't Conan the dog, right? Could very well have been Conan the dog. <laughs> the point is, we have no reason to just simply believe something as simple as that photograph was actually Conan the dog. And then... Trump further uh, instilled uh, reason for suspicion because he then, because he knew the dog was getting a lot of attention. In fact, there's been reports that he was upset that the dog was getting more attention and more praise than him. Well, of course the dog was. First of all, the dog is non-political. Second of all, the dog actually got injured. You didn't, Donald Trump. <laughs> Captain Bone Spurs. So, of course, the dog is going to get more attention. Of course, people love dogs more than people, which is rational because most people suck. But I digress. So the, re the reality is that he tweets another photograph of Conan. This time, it's him giving a medal to Conan the dog. Now, of course... This set the, the press into a tizzy, probably too much of a tizzy, because they're wondering, okay, was there some sort of a ceremony at the White House that we missed? Well, anybody with half a brain looked at the photograph, and it did appear to be photoshopped. And the, the president obviously would have invited the press to an event where Conan the Hero Dog was receiving a medal from the president for his courageous acts during the al-Baghdadi raid. So the media, you know, wasn't really using their brains if they have one. Most of them do not, unfortunately. But uh, on the other hand, there was, there was a group of people, including some fairly anti-Trump conservatives on Twitter who were defending Trump against media attacks, saying, well, of course the, the picture was photoshopped. They had taken, and this to me was the most inappropriate part of this whole deal, they had taken a photograph of Trump actually giving a medal to a real human hero, and they had taken Conan, apparently Conan, <laughs> the Conan's face from that uh, professional photograph, and they superimposed it over the real human's face, which, 
you know, you're taking a real hero getting a medal from the president, and you're using that photograph to Photoshop a dog getting, a, a, a at this point, a fictitious medal. So I, that, to me, is inappropriate, especially for the president of the United States. But more than anything, it's inappropriate for the president of the United States to be depicting himself doing something that he hasn't done without at least making it exceedingly clear that the picture is photoshopped and not real. He's not a comedian, okay? He's not supposed to just be an actor. He's not just a regular guy on Twitter. Ha ha, I made this funny Photoshop of me giving Conan the Hero Dog a medal. He's the president of the United States. And it was shocking to me that, that some pretty smart people were holding him to such an incredibly low standard that the, the media was the, the entity that was wrong in that, in that exchange. That somehow Trump bears no responsibility for having tweeted a photoshopped picture without any indication whatsoever that the picture was photoshopped. And again, I go back to the most important point of this is that the President of the United States ought to have more credibility than any of this. The, the President of the United States ought to be somebody that we can, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with them on policy or or their vision for the, for the country, what have you, you ought to at least be able to have confidence that uh, if they put out a picture and they don't indicate that it's a joke, that it's a real picture. That when they say they witnessed something on a video of uh, an ISIS terrorist being killed, that that's actually an accurate description, or at least a theoretically accurate description. But you can't do that with Trump, because that's not who Trump is. Correct. And that's the problem. It's not about the photo or the description in and of itself. It's what those things reveal about the lack of moral authority that this president has. And as I correctly predicted, there's no indication of any sort of a political bump in his approval ratings because of the al-Baghdadi mission being a success. They're still right in the same uh, place that they have been. I mean, it's still a little bit early, but I don't, I don't sense that there's going to be any significant bump. He's still right there at 41, 42%. In fact, even Rasmussen has had him uh, at a lower level of popularity over the last week or two than they normally have. Of course, I don't consider Rasmussen to be remotely legitimate because it's effectively a state-run polling institution that is uh, for the purposes of getting publicity from Fox News Channel and, and Trump himself and talk radio every time their poll is way outside the realm of the, the normal uh, range of polling that all the other polls have for, for Donald Trump's approval rating. So um, anyway, I, I, I think that um, we're pretty much done with the al-Baghdadi story. There may be more drips and drabs, and you know, eventually I guess we're going to meet Conan for real. Uh, but I, I don't think that overall it's going to have a major impact uh, politically, especially you know as far away from an election as we are. It's not the same thing as when Barack Obama uh, got Bin Laden, because obviously uh, Bin Laden is somebody that had a far, 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 far greater uh, impact on uh, and the American psyche, uh, was much more well-known, uh, and regardless of whether or not he was more nefarious or not, that doesn't matter. Reality is, is almost irrelevant in this day and age. It's all about perception, and I, I do believe that the capture and killing of, of Osama Bin Laden was probably the difference 
for for Barack Obama uh, when it came to his reelection. I, 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 you know, it was subconscious, but I do think that that had a a major impact, especially because one of the knocks against Obama supposedly was that he was going to be weak in that area. Well, no one ever thought that uh, Donald Trump was going to be weak in that area, so he doesn't get extra points. There's no bonus points for having uh, killed uh, a terrorist. Uh, you know, when you talk a big game like that, you better bring it. And if you don't, you're actually going to get deducted points. So, you know, it's a weird dynamic that uh, dictates the political realities, but that's where we are. Now, as far as uh, Trump and impeachment, I wrote a column today, which you can find at our uh, our Twitter feed, Individual One Pod, in which I outline what the articles of impeachment should look like. And the reason why I wrote it now is because this past week, on Thursday, the Democratic House of Representatives finally voted under pressure from the Republican side to officially authorize the impeachment inquiry. And they also approved uh, the rules of that impeachment inquiry. And frankly, they gave Republicans most, if not everything, of what they wanted. But that didn't help because immediately Republicans were still decrying the vote. I mean, Republicans are acting like a bunch of children. Uh, They're throwing temper tantrums all over the place. It has nothing to do with the facts. It has nothing to do with logic. It has nothing to do with the Constitution. It has nothing to do with the normal impeachment process. None of that. It's all about what's going to play to Donald Trump and on Fox News Channel. And it's embarrassing. And no matter what the Democrats do, it's not going to be good enough. It's all about process. When you cannot talk about facts, you have to talk about process. And that's where the Republicans are, because the facts are continuing to build on a daily basis in a way that are not favorable to Donald Trump. In fact, they're so unfavorable to Donald Trump that it's very clear that uh, Republicans, especially in the Senate, are now completely changing their strategy about how to combat this. You know, the, the first way to combat the Ukrainian uh, scandal allegations was to say, well, this didn't really happen. It wasn't really a quid pro quo. Uh, there was some ambiguity here. Well, it's now very, very clear that there's no ambiguity. Uh, in fact, it's becoming comically clear that there was a quid pro quo, and then everyone knew that there was a quid pro quo. I mean, even uh, Kellyanne Conway, the last of the Mohicans, could not answer today on national television, on CNN, whether or not there was a quid pro quo. She said she didn't know, uh, indicating, frankly, that there was in the way that she, she described the situation. So there was a quid pro quo. Everyone knew it. So now the argument is, well, okay, yeah, sure, there was a quid pro quo, but uh, there's nothing wrong with that really. It might be a little bad, but it's not impeachable. Or maybe if, if we really want to appeal to the cult, it was actually a good thing. Quid pro quos are good things because we're trying to get what we want from foreign governments. And the fact that we're using our, the leverage of U.S. military aid for a, a, uh, an ally uh, against Russia – who is uh, essentially uh, in, in grave danger because of Russia. We're supposed to be protecting them. We're using that leverage of military aid to our ally to get them to do the dirty work for Donald Trump's re-election campaign. That's, that's irrelevant. I mean, we're just going to claim that that's about fighting corruption, and we're going to claim that quid pro quos are perfectly normal and good. That's 
ridiculous, as uh, Charles Barkley would say. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, we all know it. Any rational person knows it. In fact, it's 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 beyond ridiculous. I mean, you cannot be serious. But that's the argument. That's the argument now. It's all okay. It's perfectly okay. In fact, maybe even good for a president of the United States to say, you know what? Um, I need you to do X, Y, or Z for me before I give you U.S. military aid that I am legally bound to give you because the Congress of the United States believed it to be in our national security interest to do so. I mean, that's... And, and, you know, there's so many aspects of this that are just mind-blowing, but one of them is that these are members of Congress who are having their own authority be usurped by the executive branch in a blatant abuse of power, and they don't care because they're so terrified of Donald Trump, and they're so terrified of a presidential tweet. It's pathetic. It's just pathetic. Uh, it's sad because uh, I don't even know. Re I mean, yes. Trump has the ability to probably uh, make sure that, you know, 70 to 80 percent of these guys and, and some women would not be reelected. But if you're not running for reelection next year or even better, if you're retiring and there are many members of the Republican Congress who are retiring next year, so they're not running for reelection. If you're one of those people, what the hell can Donald Trump really do to you? There's nothing except you'll get a little criticism. You might get some people in your home district who you know, don't like you as much. Who cares? You're not running for re-election next year or you're retiring. And I was, even I, as much as a pessimist as I am, I was uh, disappointed and a little depressed that the vote on Thursday did not include even one non-Justin Amash Republican. And I, I believe that Justin Amash should still count as a Republican when he votes in favor of impeachment. But for some reason, even the liberal news media is not doing that. They're now referring to, referring to him as an independent. I mean, he was elected as a Republican. He was forced to lead the Republican Party because of his opposition to Trump. I mean, to me, Justin Amash is a Republican, but he doesn't. he's not going to count. He's an independent. Not one Republican, not even one of those retiring, had the balls to vote in favor, not of impeachment. They did not vote to impeach Donald Trump on Thursday. They simply voted to authorize an inquiry and set the rules. Not one Republican had the balls to vote in favor of that. You cannot be serious! It's just sad. It's just sad. But it might not, as pathetic as it was, it might not be as pathetic as the state-run conservative media attacks on Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, uh, who uh, it was one of the key witnesses, certainly the key witness uh, this week. Again, it's all behind uh, closed doors, but we'll eventually we'll see the transcript and supposedly we'll eventually see these people uh, testify in public. Uh, but here's a guy who's a national security uh, official, expert on, on Ukraine, uh, and a war hero, a patriot, uh, the embodiment of the American dream. And, of course, because he has testified that he directly, he directly uh, had firsthand knowledge of the infamous phone call with the Ukrainian president, immediately sounded alarms, immediately tried to add to the transcript because he did not believe the transcript was accurate. Although, and this is something that 
I have predicted from the moment we heard about this phone call and when we saw the transcript, uh, Con- Congressman John Yarmouth, my good friend, a Democrat, was on this uh, podcast a few weeks ago, and he said the same thing, that they were very confident that the current public transcript is not an actual transcript, that there are important parts missing. I, will, I do have to say that while that was vindicated somewhat this week with Vindman's testimony, it wasn't vindicated as much as I expected. Yes, there were some things left out, and this is confusing to me. I mean, if you're going to leave some things out, okay, why don't you go for the gusto, right? I mean, if you're going to if you're going to cover this up, why not cover up the part where he says, "I need you to do me a favor," though, right? Well, why was that still in there? And the parts that were left out, while significant, were not in the bombshell variety of not they were not of the bombshell variety they were not huge apparently based on what we currently know they did not appear to be huge omissions so why bother doing that i mean it just looks bad that you're not uh putting what was actually in the phone call in the transcript and then it also looks bad when vinman says he tried to add to the transcript because he had heard it directly and he knew that things were being left out, including references to Joe Biden and uh, the company for which uh, Hunter Biden was on the board of directors at one point. And he was stymied from doing so. He was not allowed to do so, which, of course, is an indication of a cover-up, which is you know all often the case where you get more in trouble for the cover-up than the actual crime. So Vinman is a, an incredibly powerful witness direct knowledge has enormous credibility and of course the only thing they're doing is they're attacking him personally donald trump has referred to him as a never trumper and uh, and as absurd as that is uh, it's nowhere near as bad as what laura ingram did on fox news channel where she and one of her guests essentially accused lieutenant colonel vindman again a war hero, a Purple Heart recipient, a patriot, an embodiment of the American dream, a guy with impeccable credentials. Here is they essentially refer to him as a traitor. This is not a stretch. This was got this clip got a lot of play on both sides of of this controversy. And here's what that sounded like on Fox News Channel. This is buried in the New York Times piece tonight, but I found it very interesting. Um, he's, a, he's a decorated colonel, by the way, in the Iraq war. But because Colonel Vindemann emigrated from Ukraine along with his family when he was a child and is fluent in Ukrainian and Russian, Ukrainian officials sought advice from him about how to deal with Mr. Giuliani, though they typically communicated in English. Now, wait a second, John. <laughs> Here we have a U.S. national security official who is advising Ukraine while working inside the White House, apparently against the president's interest, and usually they spoke in English. Isn't that kind of an interesting angle on this story? I find that astounding, and you know, some people might call that espionage. Or some other people might call that uh idiocy i mean that's what that's might be the more uh, apt description of what that is uh, i mean really people come on you cannot be serious 
was just flat out ridiculous. I mean, that is as pathetic as it gets. I thought I had lost the ability to be outraged or even bother with the state-run so-called conservative media and how far they're willing to go uh, to to bend over backwards to protect the, their cult, uh, the, the, the god of their cult. Uh, but that takes uh, us to a brand new low. And uh, and Laura Ingram, who you know, I've I've appeared on her radio show a few times in the past. I used to have some respect for her. I mean, she is a fairly smart person. She knows better, but she also knows where her bread is buttered, and she knows that the the bread in this situation is all in coming up with something, anything, to give the cult that watches her enough to feast on where they can disregard what appears to be negative news that appears to put their their god king in a negative light and that's what they've done to to lieutenant colonel vindman and it's disgraceful Uh, unfortunately i'm not sure that the state-run media has the ability to be embarrassed anymore i don't think they can feel humiliation correct Uh, that's how deep they're in on this i don't know that pressure on them has any impact anymore because they are all about feeding the cult above everything else. And that's all it is. And it's based on an absurdity and on lies. And it has an impact. I've even had people who I consider to be semi-rational, not totally rational. They're not that many rational people. But even some semi-rational people on Twitter have indicated to me that they think that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman is, uh, is a suspicious character. Really? Really? I mean, come on, people. It just, it, just cannot, it just cannot be this easy. I love the poorly educated. For them to pull this bullshit. And that's all it is. And it's not just Vindman. It's, I mean, it, there's numerous other people now who have said exactly the same thing. And so they're going to be forced into this incredibly absurd and very dangerous argument that, you know what? Uh, yeah, maybe there was a quid pro quo, but so what? It's actually a good thing. And I have said numerous times since the Ukrainian scandal broke, but I think it bears repeating, that the what's really interesting about how people view this story, the Ukrainian story, is that it's really viewed through the prism of the Russian investigation. If you believe that the the Russian investigation was at all legitimate, as I do, and you look at all the amazing amount of smoke and legitimate evidence that that Robert Mueller was unable to fully convince the American people was was worthy of impeachment. And I I, 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 I leave it with the uh, report. Yeah, great job, Robert. Uh, if you're, you know, so so he blew it. He completely choked, and, then, and I think the evidence is mounting. I'll get to briefly uh, that Robert Mueller choked all over this entire investigation from beginning to end, and let uh, Donald Trump off the hook at every possible moment. But if you're one of these people who's actually read the Mueller report. And you see the massive amount of at least smoke, if not fire, when it came to Trump's desire to have Russia help in his 
uh, election efforts in 2016. And then you realize that the call with the Ukrainian president happened the day after Mueller's disastrous testimony. I uh, leave the answer to the uh, our report. Yeah. When you realize that that call occurs on July 25th, the day after Mueller crapped the bed, then you you have to you have to interpret the Russian investigation differently at least if you're someone who has half a brain and you're connecting all the dots i've used the analogy before but it bears repeating if you suspect your spouse of cheating on you and there's all sorts of evidence that they cheated on you but for some reason you decide to let them off the hook because you just didn't feel like there was quite enough evidence or you just didn't want to deal with it right If that happens, and the next day after you let them off the hook, they start trying to hook up with somebody else in another attempted affair, and you find out about that in a way that's even more definitive than you found out about the first affair. Well, if you have half a brain, you must come to the conclusion that, okay, the second attempt at an affair is is real, and I need to accept that that's true. And oh, by the way, I need to revisit the first attempt at an affair because I would be an imbecile if I did not connect the dots and realize, oh, this is this guy's M.O. This is what he believes in. This is how he operates. I mean, he didn't just decide on July 25th that it was perfectly cool to have a foreign government intercede in our election on his behalf. That's not the way it worked. It's because he got away with it with the Russian investigation, and that's why he decides, you know what, it worked in 2016, I'm going to do it again in 2020. That's obviously what happened here. Correct. And so... If you're if you're somebody who who has a clue about the Russian investigation, the Ukrainian scandal just amplifies and validates everything you suspected with regard to Russia. Of course, it works in the opposite direction, too. If you're a cult member who thinks that this was all a deep state conspiracy and you buy that bullshit. I love the poorly educated. Which doesn't even make any goddamn sense on the face of it. Forget about there's no evidence for it. If you're one of those morons, you think, well, this is just more of the deep state out to get Trump because he's such a goddamn great president. That's what you think. And you also think, well, he dodged the Russian investigation. He's going to survive this one, too, which, by the way, you might be right because of the political realities and the media realities that we talk about on a consistent basis. Well, just this weekend, we've we've learned more about the Russian investigation. It ought to make people uh, who, who at least were on the fence take a second look at this whole thing because there, there was there were media lawsuits that were intended to get uh, some emails and memos from the Mueller investigation. And unfortunately, emails and memos do not translate well to a podcast. So I'm just going to kind of summarize very, very quickly what some of the highlights were here. The number one thing we learned to me, because it's been one of those issues that I've been harping on, and we had uh, Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, on uh, this uh, show a few months ago to talk about how he and his outlet have been uh, vilified, including by Robert Mueller, because they reported that Robert Mueller had evidence that Michael Cohen 
was coerced into his false testimony to Congress about the Trump Tower in Moscow by Donald Trump and Donald Trump's lawyers. And that would be suborning a perjury, which is one of the things that Bill Clinton got impeached for effectively. And so I thought, my gosh, I mean, this is way more uh, substantive even than the, the Clinton impeachment situation. That ought to be part of impeachment. Well, Mueller put out that statement uh, immediate, almost immediately saying, hold your horses. That's not what we've proven. And BuzzFeed you know, was made to look bad. And the story essentially got killed because it had, it had stench all over it. The media was afraid of it. All because Mueller put out that one statement, which he had never done before or since, uh, correcting the record. Well, now we have more information, and it substantiates exactly what I've been saying all along. My point on the Cohen lie to Congress about the Trump Tower project in Moscow just to review, we know for sure that the Trump Tower Moscow project was still in the works in at least June of 2016, which is important because that's when the Trump Tower meeting occurs between the Russians promising dirt on Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump's son, Donald Trump's son-in-law, and Donald Trump's campaign chairman, all on a day when Trump is in the building. So, gee, I wonder whether or not Donald Trump had knowledge of that uh, particular meeting. That's a that's always been a real mind bender for me. Gee, uh, come on, people. Of of course, of course he did. Of course he knew every detail of it. If you don't believe that, you're you're a complete moron. I mean, to think anything else is just it's just flat out ridiculous. And but. Going to back to the Cohen situation, Cohen didn't testify that it ended in June. He testified to Congress under oath that it ended in January of 2016. Now, that to me, in a rational world, is effectively proof that he had to be coerced or directed into that false testimony. Why? Well, because first of all, Michael Cohen's not that bright. All right. Number one, number one. Number two, he's not going to go rogue at this time. He's still part of Trump's team. And if he does go rogue, how does he know where to go rogue? It's not, it's not a yes or no lie, okay? A yes or no lie you don't need to direct people to, uh, unless, of course, they're complete imbeciles. But they, if people know you deny this happened, right? So if, if Cohen was going to lie... His, his initial lie, his initial inclination would be, no, this Trump Tower thing never happened. Well, they couldn't do that because they knew there was too much documentation. So he couldn't lie. He knew he could not lie totally. So he did the next best thing. He lied about when it ended. Why? Well, what happens in February of 2016? In February of 2016, the Republican primary and caucuses begin in the election campaign and somebody trump or someone close to trump decided you know what that's as far as we can push it we cannot have us pursuing a a uh, a trump tower in moscow while we're running officially for president of the united states while their primaries are going on and while we're denying any business in russia we can't do that and so 
That's where Cohen gets the idea, oh, okay, I'm going to lie about this. I'm not going to deny it happened, but I'm going to say it ended in January so that magically we have plausible deniability when it comes to the election and certain statements that Trump made as saying, I have no business in Russia. Now, in a rational world, by the way, that wouldn't have cut it because in January 2016, he's clearly running for president. It just hasn't started yet with the official primaries and caucuses, but this is the best they thought they could get away with. And so Cohen lies to Congress. Well, we now have emails and memos that make it very clear that Cohen was directed. In fact, it gets to the point where it, the message was sent from Trump to Cohen that the president loves you, Michael, and he has your back. You know what that means? In a rational world, in the in the world of the mafia, in the in the realm of Tony Soprano or Donnie Soprano, as I like to refer to Trump, here's what that means in the real world. You do this and you get caught, you'll be pardoned. That's what that means. We've got your back, Michael, and uh, we love you. Go do your job. That's where Cohen got the idea and the gumption to lie under oath for Congress. And that, by the way, his mistrust of Donald Trump is why he's currently in prison. That's why he's there. Correct. And so right there, right there is a bigger scandal than anything that that Bill Clinton did to get impeached. I truly believe that, that the Michael Cohen situation alone, if that was all we knew, especially when you combine it with the campaign finance allegations where uh, Donald Trump is referred to as individual one. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. When you combine those two things, that right there is enough to impeach the president. And it would be more substantive and e more easily proven, frankly, than what got Bill Clinton impeached in 1998, 1999. Uh, and, and yet that's been totally lost in all this. There's in this midst this avalanche of other stuff. Uh, the, the Michael Cohen situation has been lost, but it got further substantiated yesterday and more vindication for BuzzFeed's original reporting. There was also an indication in the emails that were released by media outlets yesterday that Trump was desperate to get access to the WikiLeak, WikiLeaks emails, that the Republican National Committee had prior knowledge of the release of the WikiLeaks emails. That's attempted collusion at the very least, and that's evidence that there actually was collusion. Because how is it that the Republican Party had prior knowledge of the release of the WikiLeaks emails? There was also Steve Bannon. And remember who Steve Bannon is, okay? Steve Bannon, who was effectively the campaign manager at the end of the 2016 campaign, uh, you know, he's a guy I know a little bit. I, I met with him once and had uh, a lunch or a dinner uh, and was not very impressed with him at all. Uh, but he is a smart guy. He's well-educated. Uh, he won the election for Trump, so uh, he's not a complete moron. But there are, uh, there are emails where Steve Bannon is saying before the election, just days before the election, which is interesting because Bannon was convinced they were going to win, that he was already concerned that their victory was going to be blamed on the Russians. And that because this narrative was going to happen, 
that they needed to separate themselves from Paul Manafort because of Paul Manafort's involvement with Russian oligarchs. I'm paraphrasing. But isn't that incredibly interesting that before, before we now know that before the uh, election even happens, Bannon is already worried about the Russian narrative. Why? Why would he be worried about that? Why would he be so worried about uh, Paul Manafort uh, and his involvement unless he knew something that it was based on reality? I also find it amazing that he he seemingly be, was the only guy that knew they were going to win because nobody thought they were going to win, including Trump, including Melania. And, I mean, nobody, no, Kellyanne Conway, no, nobody thought they were going to win, uh, including myself. So when I when I read these emails and memos, I keep going back to what my initial reaction to the Mueller report was, especially once uh, Bill Barr had completely uh, uh, dis, uh, discombobulated the works. He had diffused the bomb. He had lied about what was in the Mueller report. He completely ran circles around Mueller from a PR perspective. My uh, immediate reaction to the Mueller report was that Mueller had choked. That and that he had choked for a number of reasons. Uh, one, because he's an old man who's a dinosaur who still thinks that the old ways work and that you, you do your job by the letter of the law, you dot your I's, you cross your T's, and it's all going to work out in the end. That's not the world we live in anymore. Uh, I also think he was very naive. I think he was intimidated by the whole witch hunt uh, uh, argument by Donald Trump, and that uh, you know he was afraid of being seen as a uh, a biased prosecutor, and so I think essentially Trump worked the referee. He worked the referee like a master. He got the referee to think, okay, I I am being accused here of being biased, which of course was absurd because Mueller's a lifelong Republican. But, uh, but he was getting accused of being a biased referee, and so he bent over backwards to not be biased. And he was also naive, and he was old, and I think he lost his balls because uh, this would have taken some colossal uh, testicles to do this properly. And Mueller didn't have them. I uh, leave the answer to the uh, our report. Yeah, and, and he clearly was too old to handle the testimony. Uh, he restricted himself way too much in that testimony. He didn't tell a story. He came across as bumbling at times. And I have to say, uh, one of the better predictions I made during all of this, and, and I had no idea how much anger I would have towards Robert Mueller when it was done, but I kept saying during the entire Russian investigation, man, liberals are putting an awful lot of eggs in the Robert Mueller basket. They are pretending he is Superman. Uh, and there's there are no Superman. They don't exist anymore. And it was very clear to me Robert Mueller was not going to be that guy. Uh, but, I mean, in retrospect, it's almost comical. Uh, the superpowers that liberals were uh, attributing to Robert Mueller that he clearly did not have. Maybe at one point he, he might have had them, but he didn't have them when they mattered. And uh, gosh, boy, I would, love, I would love someone to eventually do an interview with Robert Mueller. 
I don't think it's ever going to happen, or at least one of his deputies, to find out what really happened here. Because they had Trump dead to rights on so much. And I get I get that Rosenstein defused the bomb and that Bill Barr defused the bomb and that, that from a strategic standpoint, you basically, you know, Mueller's a good guy and the good guy is at an inherent disadvantage against the bad guy here. Because Mueller doesn't realize he's up against bad guys. He's thinking that, uh, that Barr and, and Rosenstein are on the up and up. Well, they weren't. And so they ran circles around him. Um, but at some point... You know, if you, where's the anger, Robert Mueller? Well, I mean, you you let the country down, and you got hoodwinked by Bill Barr and by Rosenstein. Shouldn't you tell the damn story for real? I mean, I don't think that's going to happen, but it's just amazing. I think I, that's my, goes back to my never trust the the balls of old white successful men because they they shrink into nothing and they're terrified that this is going to be their last chapter and this is how they're going to be remembered, and so they become complete pusses uh old white women look out they got big balls but you know not not the men never ever trust the balls of uh, old white successful men and robert Mueller is a uh, is a perfect example of that unfortunately further proved by the release of the emails and memos uh this weekend now i want to go to the the latest in the democratic presidential race i have been telling you i think ahead of the curve that things were really opening up perfectly for Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I've been warning about this for the last couple of months, and I think I have been vindicated on this because now it appears as if she's the favorite. She's being treated as the favorite by the media. There is a divergence between the national polls and the state polls that is pretty dramatic. In fact, it seems to be uh, increasing. And I, I don't have a, a great explanation for this. I mean, there's always been some divergence between the national and state polls, but this is pretty pronounced. I mean, in the national polls, you still have national polls where, where Joe Biden is leading. In fact, in some where he's leading in a commanding fashion. But on the state polls, specifically Iowa and New Hampshire, that is not the case. So in the national polls, it looks like a two-person race, maybe a three-person race between Biden, Warren, and Bernie Sanders, although I am one of those that discounts Bernie Sanders' chances of actually winning the nomination. And I think there's good reason for that. I mean, the, the media is getting some criticism from the from the Sanders people saying that you're not taking us seriously. Well, why should they take Bernie Sanders seriously when he has less than half the support he did in 2016 when he did not win the nomination? So I'm sorry. He he has less than half the support he did in the Democratic primary in the 2016 uh, uh, process. Less than half than what he got against Hillary Clinton. And again, he didn't win that time. So how's he going to win this time? Doesn't, it's not impossible, but I understand why, especially since he's not even technically a Democrat, he's a, he's a socialist, I understand the extreme skepticism and why he's not really being taken seriously as a top-tier candidate, even before his heart attack, which he's made a remarkable recovery from. But as far as Warren and, and Biden are concerned, you know, Saturday Night Live last night, their opening sketch, they're treating Elizabeth Warren as the front runner. I mean, they, they basically made a contribution to her campaign. Some people thought it was not totally pro-Warren, but I thought it was very pro-Warren in the way that they're depicting her. Uh, 
And, but this week she did have a problem. She finally came up with a a plan for how she's going to pay for Medicaid for Medicare for all uh, uh, program. Basically, you know, universal medicine. She gets rid of private health insurance, and it did not go over particularly well. Mainly because. She, she can't make the math work. I mean, you know, it, some people in the media praised it, uh, but they were already Warren sycophants to begin with. For any rational person, they look at it and they go, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. It doesn't add up in any way, shape, or form. She's pretending that she's going to be able to raise way more money from, from increasing taxes on the rich than she actually can. She's pretending it's not going to cost nearly as much as it actually would. And she's also pretending that the you know couple million people that work in the private health insurance industry can magically find jobs in other insurance industries, which is just absurd. It's, abs- it's, a, it's, a, it's absolutely, as Charles Barkley would say. It's just flat out ridiculous. And there are enough people in the media who are saying, you know what, this doesn't seem to add up. Uh, she's kind of got herself in a little bit of a trap where she's actually trying to make it work in a rational world because she, I think, (laughs) thinks that she might actually be president. Bernie Sanders, who probably doesn't really think he's going to be president, he can live in the fantasy world where he just doesn't give a shit about whether or not it adds up. He's like, no, no, this is going to cost so much money, it's going to blow your mind. And I don't care because I'm a socialist. She's actually pretending to care. And it's kind of gotten her into a little bit of a trap. And so I'm not someone that believes that policy dictates uh, presidential campaigns or any campaigns anymore. And facts don't really matter. Logic doesn't really matter. But I do think that there's going to be a perception out there that maybe she's biting off more than she can chew. Uh, People want to keep their private insurance. So I I don't think this is going to help her. Uh, continue her momentum. I, I see her momentum starting to slow, and I and I see it going to another uh, candidate, and that's Pete Buttigieg. I think P- Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, is now positioned in much the same way that Elizabeth Warren was a couple months ago. I saw the Warren surge coming, and I see the Buttigieg surge coming now. Uh, and I think this the Buttigieg surge is maybe even more dangerous to Joe Biden than Warren, because Warren was taking away from Bernie Sanders, from the far left of the Democratic Party, uh, and, and holding him down. Buttigieg, I think, has the potential to take more directly from Joe Biden. Uh, and by the way, one of the explanations I have for the, the difference between the Iowa and New Hampshire polls and the national polls is that in Iowa and New Hampshire, where the candidates actually are, an incredibly large number of people actually get to meet the candidates and see them uh, in action. And it could very well be that Biden, because he's so damn old, is just not impressing people in person, that he can get away with it on television for a few minutes. So the people that are seeing Biden on television, they're still thinking, okay, he was vice president for eight years. He's solid. We're okay with that. But the people that are actually seeing him in person seem to be more hesitant. He's in some polls, he's in third and fourth place in Iowa, New Hampshire. And I think that there's a scenario right now where the media jumps on Buttigieg because he's the new, young, you know, potentially new Obama. He's gay, so he can make history. He's smart. He's young. He's not of Washington. They're going to fall in love again with him. They fall in love with him once. I thought he couldn't get a second bite of the media apple, but I think the media is going to get bored with Warren, and I can see them jumping on the Buttigieg uh, bandwagon. He's got a ton of money. I think right now, obviously a lot can happen. I think Buttigieg is going to win Iowa. 
And uh, he probably won't win New Hampshire because you've got Warren and Sanders in their backyard there. But he'll do okay in New Hampshire. Uh, and then it's just a matter of whether or not he can uh, you know, do well in Nevada and then South Carolina. He's going to have a problem winning the black vote, not just because he's gay, but because he's had some problems in, in South Bend uh, with black voters there. I don't think it's impossible, but it's not, it's not natural uh, for him. But I do think he can, he can peel away some moderate white people from Joe Biden. And so if this becomes a four-person race, which it very well may, if Biden hangs in there and can hold on to the black vote, Sanders people aren't going anywhere as long as he doesn't have another heart attack, and, and Warren is at a pretty solid 20%. If you get those four candidates, boy, it is hard to see how anyone wins the nomination. It really is. I mean, I, everyone's always been saying for years, oh, broker convention, broker. And I thought there was going to be a broker convention in 2016 on the Republican side because of Trump, and then he ended up blowing that away. So a broker convention is very, very difficult. But it is, it is certainly within the realm of possibility. If there's four candidates who are all of basic equal strength, who are hitting at different parts of the party, and I, I don't know that that would be good for, for uh, beating Donald Trump. I mean, that, that's just, you know, when you get that kind of fracture, uh, it gives the incumbent certainly an opportunity, even if he's unpopular as Donald Trump is. Uh, so that's where I currently see the, the Democratic race. Uh, I, I, Trump, you have to acknowledge, has gotten some more good economic news. Uh, you know, the, the economy continues to hum, around, hum along despite uh, potential headwinds. There were good uh, unemployment numbers. The stock market shot up to some new record highs this week. I mean, all that can change if the, the tariff situation doesn't get fixed. But I got to say uh, that, uh, unfortunately, things are looking up slightly for Donald Trump's Re-election, even as he's about to get impeached because the Democrats don't have their shit together. Uh, it's looking less and less like Joe Biden is going to be the unmolested uh, Democratic presidential candidate. I think uh, Warren and Buttigieg both have major problems in a general election against Donald Trump. And as I said, as long as the economy's good, I think Trump has a shot. So uh, as we end this edition of the Individual One podcast, I'm going to change the, the numbers in a more pessimistic direction for both him not finishing his first term in office. I'm going to go back down to 10% on Donald Trump not finishing his first term in office, and I'm going to raise his re-election chances to 45%, largely because of what's going on with the Democratic primary process as well as the economy remaining strong. So again, remember, please, no wagering. And as is always the case, please subscribe, rate, review, and share this show via social media. Follow us on Twitter, at Individual1Pod. That's at Individual1Pod. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.